it's really lovely to be with you all this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and Mira, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, this is my first time at the Reuters Institute and I have wanted to come for a very long time. So it's, um, it's an absolute honour to have been invited to be on this side rather than sitting with you. Um, <clears throat> as Mira mentioned, I'm the editor of BBC Reality Check. I'll be telling you quite a lot more about um, our team as we go through this presentation. Um, but we're a small team um, which has been growing over the past year in response to this thing that we are calling fake news. Um, and we'll talk quite a lot about that and I'm incredibly interested to hear all of your views on what it is and whether we should even call it it and... Um, what we should do about it. Um, and that's why the title of my presentation is fairly straightforward, or the first part of it anyway. Is it true? I think we are really back to the very basic tenets, tenets of journalism. Is it true? This institute has published a huge amount on this topic, and I'm not going to pretend to be able to emulate any of that, and I've read it with great interest. Um, instead, I'll, I'll be talking about what it's like at, at the sharp end um, in the newsroom. Um, and so, so for those of you not familiar with everything the BBC does, particularly internationally, um, I thought we'd watch this quick video to catch up. So that's just a little taste of what we've been doing. But let's get straight into this rather knotty problem. What is fake <coughs> news? I think everybody thinks they know what it is. I think everybody in this room probably has an opinion about it. Um, thousands of pages have been written about what it is and what it isn't. The BBC has its own definition of fake news. We describe it as a range of dis- or misinformation, including the misuse of data. But at its heart is the intent to deceive. Governments and the EU, for instance, have their own views about what fake news is. And as I said, many people have tried to avoid the term altogether because of the political connotations. After all, it was Donald Trump who catapulted the phrase into everyday language and because of the arguments about what it is and isn't. So essentially, the definition of fake news is judgment-based. And therefore, I think, <clears throat> despite the location of this, uh, this talk, I'd rather not be academic about it. I think it's more helpful to think about what the audience thinks fake news is, and that is a much broader definition. So I've tried to divide fake news up into different types. The easiest to understand is the stories that were completely invented for political or commercial gain. So, remember Pizzagate during the US presidential election? A completely false story about a paedophile ring being run out of a pizza restaurant with links to Hillary Clinton. It was debunked, it was refuted, it was proven to be false. But that didn't stop a gunman travelling for six hours to the restaurant and firing his weapon. Fake news has real consequences. Then, there's state propaganda. And by this I mean the deliberate misinformation spread by a government or a state actor. And that differs from spin. This is something me and my team deal with every day, both from politicians and anyone with a product or an idea to sell. It's probably easier if I give an example to explain. Um, the one I'm going to use is a political example, but the technique is equally deployed by marketers and PR teams, and my inbox is full of it. So, this is very topical today, because the BBC bulletins this morning were leading on nurses' numbers. This is, these numbers are slightly old, but they're pretty much still the same, and the argument is identical. 
Um, so the government says there have been there's been a 13,100 rise in the number of nurses working on NHS wards in England since May 2010. The problem with SPIN is that's true, but only if you count nurses on acute, elderly or general wards. If you count all the nurses, there was a rise of only 5,000. And there are 285,000 nurses in total. The context is incredibly important. So try again. The Health Secretary, British Health Secretary, a senior member of the same government, there are 15,000 more nurses since I became Health Secretary. Sounds great. Reality check verdict, true. But let's take a look at the context again and see if you still have that warm, fuzzy feeling about that statistic. From 2010, when his government came into power until 2012, when he was appointed Health Secretary, Nurses' numbers fell by 10,000. So yes, they have since risen by 15,000, but that gets us back to the 5,000 figure we were talking about before. Not only that, but demand on the NHS in England has been increasing. In a three-year period, vacancies for nurses doubled from 20,000 to 40,000. Do you still feel the same about the 15,000 increase in the number of nurses? He wasn't wrong, though, was he? So that's spin. Anyway, back to other types of fake news. <clears throat> Another major form is the misuse or, use of, or misused or doctored images. Huge problem on social media where pictures and videos go, go viral. Here's a very good example of a type of fake news being spread by a really prominent figure. This was at a time when the violence um, in Rakhine State in Myanmar was exploding and hundreds of thousands of people were fleeing over the border into Bangladesh. Turkey's deputy prime minister took to Twitter and shared some photos of the violence that the Muslim Rohingya people were suffering. They were indeed suffering, but this wasn't pictures of it. The social media war in that conflict was vicious and grotesque and overwhelmingly inaccurate. None of these photos, retweeted thousands of times before he deleted it, were from that conflict. So by debunking this and other inaccurate photos, we helped the audience better understand what was happening in Rakhine State and why. So that's images. Much of what you see on the internet isn't news, it's comment. Extremely biased or unbalanced articles which are written like news articles. The canary is a good example on the left of politics in the UK. In America, the right has Breitbart, and I'm sure you're familiar with many others from your home countries, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about them. Finally, there's one that we often forget, satire. In itself, satire is not news. It's not fake news. It can be funny and light-hearted way of looking at the news, and there's nothing wrong with it. But do you remember that story about the Pope supporting Donald Trump? That's fake news started on a website which openly admitted that most of its articles were satire or pure fantasy. But that didn't stop it spreading and people believing it. So if we know what is fake news, what isn't fake news? And here are a couple of points on which Donald Trump and I differ. Journalistic mistakes. Let's not pretend they don't happen. Some are minor, some are more serious. But so long as they are unintentional, and the item has been produced in good faith, they are mistakes and they should be dealt with accordingly. 
Many countries, including the UK, have elaborate regulation to deal with this, including self-regulation for handling complaints and making corrections. But remember, fake news is about the intention to deceive. Errors are generally unintentional. News you don't agree with is not fake news. And this is where even the best news organisations around the world are getting accused of being so-called fake news. Now, we all find that video fairly amusing, if it wasn't so serious, because we know that the BBC and CNN are not fake news. Um, but those seeds of doubt are being sown, and that is incredibly dangerous, dangerous for the future of a free press. What's going on and the impact it has, I think, is very well summed up in this quote from one of President <coughs> Reagan's former speechwriters. You might have heard it before. I think it's very powerful. Here is the fact of the age. People believe nothing. They think everything is spin and lies. The minute a government says A is true, half the people on earth know A is a lie. And when people believe nothing, as we know, they will believe anything. But you guys are smart, honestly. You're at Oxford University and you have done many great pieces of work. You might be great journalists. You know the difference between real and fake news, don't you? I thought we could have a little exercise. It is, after all, after lunch and I don't want anybody going to sleep. It's nice and warm in here. It's quite crowded, which is very nice. Um, does everybody mind? Everybody who is able, would you mind standing up? please, and we'll just have a little true or false game, fake or not fake. Okay, so you guys, I assume most of you, if not all of you, have heard of the band One Direction. They are huge in the UK amongst teenage girls and others. So recently, a girl screamed so hard at a One Direction concert that her lung collapsed. Is that true or false? If you think it's fake, please sit down. <laughs> it was true. Oh. Now, now in that in that in that case, in that case, it looked very much like a fake news story, because One Direction hadn't hadn't recently performed in the location that was mentioned. There were no direct quote, quotes. It turned out that it had appeared in a medical journal, a story so unbelievable it was peer reviewed. So that was true. So up you get again. Sorry, we're going to do this quite a lot. <coughs> Hospitals in the UK have started banning supersized chocolate bars. And as a result, sales of sushi and salad have rocketed. Oh, something's going wrong with my... Ooh. So <coughs> hospitals are banning supersized chocolate bars. And as a result, sushi and salad sales are rocketing. If you think that story's fake, please sit down. If you sat down, you're, you're correct. Oh. It is wrong. <laughs> and, if you think, and if you think about it, if you were going to a shop for a chocolate bar, would you buy sushi or salad? No. <laughs> um, both of the things are probably true. Sushi and salad sales probably did rock it. But there's no causal link. Up again. <laughs> only, one, only one home nation, um, UK home nation, England, is going to Russia for the World Cup this year. Scotland's manager said his team's failure to qualify was because they were genetically behind. Extra points if you've read the reality check on this. 
is that true? Is a, he, he said that they lacked the height and strength to compete. Was he right? No, is it, is it true that if, you, if they lacked the height and strength, that, they, that was inevitable that they weren't going to qualify? So, does average height of your football team dictate success? If you think it does, sit down. So, if you think height's important, sit down. If you think, sorry, if you think height is important, height matters, sit down. If you think it doesn't, then stay standing. <laughs> height doesn't matter. Portugal was one of the shortest and they won Euro 2016. And the shortest teams in the world include Brazil and Spain. Last one, last one, everyone up. Okay. The Russian Defence Ministry gives regular updates on, or it did at the time until it claimed total liberation, of so-called um, Islamic State in Syria. It gives updates on the amount of territory it's liberated. Recently, the Defence Minister said it had liberated 5,223 square kilometres. 503, sorry, 503,223 square kilometres. Fake or not fake? Fake, sit down. Five hundred and three thousand two hundred and twenty-three square kilometres. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just watching our Russian fellow. <laughs> yes. It was indeed inaccurate. The total area of Syria is only one hundred and eighty-five thousand square kilometres. So, I love doing that exercise. It's the second time I've done it, but it's really, it's, anyway, it keeps you awake. But uh, it just shows that fake news is really hard to identify. Whatever you call it, whether you do or don't want to call it fake news, it is really hard to identify. But I wondered if you noticed something else. Who, who of you decided to stay standing or to sit down because of what you saw other people doing? You all looked around you, you all giggled nervously at your decision. If you, if you were in the minority, you looked even more uncomfortable and you made a very late decision to sit down. That is exactly what is happening on social media. You see someone, respect, someone that you respect share or like or retweet something, you are more likely to believe it's true than if you had just seen it independently. It is completely irrational, kind of, but yet, it's an effect that we are all vulnerable to. Um, people like the news. They are curious about the world and why things happen. And there are an awful lot of things happening right now, and aren't they confusing? Um, I mean, seriously, the global economy is more interconnected and complex than ever. For the last 10 years, we've been trying to figure out how a few dodgy mortgages in the US managed to wreak such havoc. And then there's Brexit, which is one of the most far-reaching and complicated political negotiations of recent times. How to solve a problem like North Korea? Will China overtake the US as the number one superpower? Will there ever be peace in the Middle East? But how does it affect me, my job, my child's education? Will I be able to live my life freely? How do I know what's true? And just like all of you didn't know what's true, nor does everybody else, so let's take a really controversial issue at the moment. This is a poll. Concerns about Islamification in society. I'm sure a lot of you will have seen this. The polling company Ipsos Mori did this survey. And they asked out of every, out of every 100 people, how many do you think are Muslims? 
In France, people estimated 31%. In Great Britain, people said 15%. In the Czech Republic, people said 3%. And that was the reality. You know, what people believe to be a fact influences their opinions, and they are very hungry for facts. And for me, this cartoon sums up our challenge perfectly. I've heard the rhetoric from both sides. Time to do my own research on the real truth. Literally the first link that agrees with what you already believe. Jackpot. I come across this a lot. Hearing both sides of an argument is absolutely crucial to be balanced journalism. But when you've got one highly intelligent person on one side saying one thing and another highly intelligent person on the other side saying the complete opposite, how are you supposed to decide which one to believe? It, as politics becomes even more polarised, fewer politicians are acknowledging there is common ground. But the public wants to know the truth. They need to fill that void, and that's where misinformation and even fake news can take hold. But in reality, they've already started to form an opinion, and the internet gives them the opportunity to reinforce it. Because, and I'm going to shock you now, the internet does not serve up the same news to everyone in the same way. <laughs> I know. You just love the fact that your smart TV is learning which programmes you like, and as a consequence, it is dishing you up a constant diet of Game of, Game of Thrones and cookery shows. But exactly the same thing is happening on your social media feeds. Every time you watch that Huffington Post video all the way through, or you click on that Breitbart link because it seems so incredible, it is learning what interests you, and it will then just keep offering you more of the same. A few months ago, I started... Um, following a lot of new Facebook pages to try and follow more fact-checkers, look at different types of news sites, particularly that were aimed at different groups of people. Um, and suddenly, my feed was transformed. It was full of health and education stories uh, and Donald Trump, a lot of, a lot of Donald Trump. Um, the algorithm had been jolted awake and it was trying to guess what I might like because I'd confused it. It was missing the previously smooth data that I had been feeding it. So it was spewing out all sorts of random things that I wouldn't normally have seen. And the point I'm trying to make is that you create your news viewing platform and it is not representative. The number of times I hear people in my own newsroom say, Liz, have you seen this? The whole of Twitter is talking about it. Mm -hmm. The whole of Twitter is not talking about it. <laughs> a lot of people you choose to follow on Twitter are talking about it, and your Twitter feed is not the world. I'm not saying Twitter isn't hugely useful for finding stories, but your own feed is just an echo chamber of the company that you keep there. So then, into this new world steps the balanced, fair, mainstream media, and our audiences are wondering why we're not saying the same things as everyone else on the internet. Ergo, the mainstream media is biased and fake. Of course, it's not. So let me tell you a little bit about what the BBC is doing, particularly to cope with this so-called post-truth era. Trust is and will continue to be at the heart of who we are and what we do. And as you saw in the video uh, with John Sopel and Donald Trump, the BBC's reputation for being impartial, free and fair was on the tip of John Sopel's tongue. The BBC's just turned 95 years old, which I think is quite unbelievable. And I think it's safe to say that an institution doesn't get to that age still going strong without knowing a thing or two about adapting and innovation. 
we like this chart. This is in the UK, um, and of all of the news sources, TV, radio, papers, magazines and websites, which one are you most likely to turn to for the news you trust the most? Uh, and we top it, and if you can read it, I thought Facebook was down the bottom somewhere, right down the other end somewhere. Uh, oh, in the middle. Oh, 1%, anyway, 57%. Um, that's not to say we don't have our ups and downs, you know, and it wouldn't be balanced to show a graph like that without showing a graph like this as well. Um, so this is from, two, from 2004 to uh, around the beginning of last year. Um, the bottom line is how much people trust the BBC, and the score is out of 10. Um, no, that's the Facebook one. Sorry, I'm get, I've got ahead of myself. This is how much you trust people as a news source, which we still come top of, and this is the BBC graph. So, sorry. The bottom line is how much people trust the BBC, with the score out of 10. You can see we've got, gone up and down, and overall, we, when we make mistakes, our trust rating takes a hit, as you would expect it to do. Um, so how do we maintain our reputation? The public service remit is absolutely crucial. Um, public service media plays an essential and unique role in the provision of quality journalism with obligations on accuracy and impartiality, whether that's the BBC or any other public service media. The aim is to serve all audiences, not just some. This enables us uh, everyone to engage with and understand important questions, supporting democratic debate and, importantly, holding decision-makers to account without fear or favour. Public service media can only deliver those vital contributions to society if it is independent and therefore a trusted voice with a stable remit and funding. A year ago, our then Director of News, James Harding, announced a new initiative to help combat the so-called fake news phenomenon. He said, we need to explain what's driving the news. We need slow news, news with more depth, data investigations, analysis, expertise, to help us explain the world we're living in. Slow news means weighing in on the battle over lies, distortions and exaggerations in the news. The BBC can't edit the internet, but we won't stand aside either. So that's what he did, and he created a slow news department of which Reality Check is part of. Sometimes it's just about sticking to our values. We had our own version of Pope endorsing Trump, but this was no satirical article. It was on the front page of the UK's biggest selling, one of the UK's biggest selling newspapers, The Sun. It declared, Queen backs Brexit. It caused one of the biggest rows of the EU referendum campaign and prompted a successful complaint to the press regulator by Buckingham Palace. But the BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg, later revealed that she had been told something similar she had decided not to report it because it came from a single source and she judged it not to be credible. Therein lies the difference in our trust ratings. Generally, the BBC will require two sources on a story before it can run. But we have also realised that all journalists need new, new skills to tackle inaccurate news. Journalists have generally been trained to disregard it. Why would our correspondent in a far-flung country call in about a story which isn't true? Previously, the BBC's silence on a story meant it wasn't newsworthy, but with the explosion of news outlets and social media, our silence is no longer as loud as it once was. 
We need verification skills for those journalists so they, don't, they themselves don't get caught out. And when we do tackle inaccurate news stories and call them out, how do we make the verdict more memorable than the original claim? And this is fact-checkers around the world are struggling with this problem. Here is a case in point. Fake news doesn't just come on the internet. Sometimes it comes on the sides of big red buses. This bus was used by the Leave campaign in the Brexit referendum in 2016, and it is still causing me headaches, not least yesterday morning at 5.30 when I read The Guardian. It said, we, will, we send the EU £350 million a week. Let's fund our NHS instead. The UK never sent £350 million a week to the EU, and even if it did, to spend all of that on the NHS instead would, have mean taking, would, would mean taking away money away from other places. We wrote about it again and again and again. We rebutted it across all our broadcasts, we tweeted about it, the head of the Leave campaign then said it was the main reason the UK voted for Brexit. And even now, the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson is still talking about it, but you might have noticed he's changed his tune slightly, and if anyone wants to talk about this more later, I can talk about it for hours. Um, earlier this month, a oh, sorry, earlier last month, a statue um, of George Orwell was unveiled outside the BBC's headquarters in London, and inscribed next to it is this quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Fake news is so much about people believing what they see or read because they want it to be true. They don't want to be challenged. In November, I shared this quote with a conference at the EU in Brussels, and someone very smart commented that this is all very well, but in a world of algorithms and user preferences, how do we get the news to them? And that's the challenge. But in a, tradi a method traditional media, in a, sorry, but in a method traditional media has not been used to, we need to go to them. And that means covering stories they are interested in. You can't influence people unless they want you in their life. So, back to football. Are England terrible at penalty shootouts? Yes, we're the worst in the world. <laughs> when is your train actually on time? When is your late train actually on time? As a regular user of Great Western Railway, I was in absolutely just gobsmacked to have arrived early today. Um, I loved this piece, but basically all around the world, different trains can be late to various degrees, but still be counted as on time. That video was watched 700,000 times on Facebook. And I would like to say that those people now are aware of Reality Check and next time they see a Reality Check story, they might read it and it might not be something that's just about the topic that they are specifically interested in. We also have to be multimedia and have a presence on the highest profile outlets. There is no point being a fact-checking service if you're only a niche brand. Here is our Reality Check correspondent, Chris Morris, on the BBC News at 10 which is watched by around 5 million people every night. He was talking about the latest on Brexit negotiations, but it's, it's an example on how we have to have many different storytelling techniques. The negotiations at the moment are about the terms of the UK's withdrawal from the EU, sorting out the past and present, if you like. It is complicated, but the longer it takes, the less time there is to talk about the future relationship after Brexit. So what are the sticking points? Well, as we've just heard, Ireland remains a tough one. Everyone agrees that there should be no hard border after Brexit, 
between Northern Ireland and the Republic. It will be a disaster for the economy and potentially for the peace process. I'm not going to make you watch the whole thing. You've all had, you all have enough Brexit in your diet, I'm sure. Um, but um, one of the points about reality check um, that was part of our is part of our brief is that we don't sit on the fence. If there's a, if there, if a story, if we're looking at a story that's maybe true or maybe isn't, and you can't actually tell and you can't prove it either way, we won't actually do it. We actually choose our stories like that. Can we make a decision? Um, the BBC is sometimes allowed an opinion. Um, but it also goes far beyond projects like Reality Check. Um, quality journalism across all of our output uh, and other initiatives. For instance, the BBC offers an almost formal education in journalism through a project called School Report. Uh, and the programme Newsround is now in its 46th year. Uh, it's been busy helping children understand fake news as well, and this is a video you will want to watch to the end. So cute, but so terrifying. Um, so the BBC is going further um, to deal with this. In November, it was announced that um, Reality Check, School Report, and programmes like Newsround and many others will be teaming up to send journalists back to school. Uh, from March this year, we're going to be launching a new project supporting young people to identify real news and filter out fake or false information. A thousand schools will be involved around the country. Uh, as well as visits from famous BBC faces, there'll be classroom activities, video tutorials, and uh, the world-renowned Ardman studio is making an interactive video game, which puts the player at the heart of the BBC newsroom <coughs> making the editorial decisions. And there will be a reality check roadshow touring the country. Schools will be able to nominate their own reality checkers and some will even be able to front their own reality checks on BBC News. And just to reassure you, our team will be working directly with them to make sure that their work is as robust as the rest of the reality checks content. So, back to how we do it. One thing I regularly get asked is how do we choose the stories that we, that we tackle on Reality Check? It's a really hard one. The BBC has a particularly powerful voice and you don't want to use a mallet to crack a nut and you have to be sure it's in the public interest. So firstly, how widespread is the fake news or the claim that you're checking? By putting it on the BBC, you're introducing it to a little-known story, perhaps, to a massive audience who otherwise would never have been affected by it. So, for us, it has to be something that's reached a lot of people. And just going back to that point I made about people remembering the claim more than the verdict, that's why that's absolutely crucial. It has to be widespread. For claims, did the person mean to say it? Was it a mistake? Did they, did they say it in good faith? Put simply, I spend an awful lot of my time wondering why Donald Trump and others might be right. You know, even if on the surface of it, it appears that they were wrong. We have to be fair. An example last week was around the, the US Embassy in London. I'm sure a lot of you might have followed that story. Um, President Trump accused President Obama of selling the embassy, the old embassy, for peanuts. People were quick to point out that the decision to move was made under George W. Bush. They were right, but the deal was sealed under Obama. So Trump was right. The actual selling of the, of the embassy came under Obama. How you define peanuts is up to you. Does it matter? 
By this I mean something strictly speaking might have been wrong, but did it influence anyone or anything? Did it have an impact? And if not, is it worth the considerable effort that it takes to debunk it? There is so much stuff out there. As James Harding says, you can't edit the internet. You have to focus on what matters. I promise I will stop talking in a minute, but I just wanted to tell you about what we're planning for in the future. Reality Check is expanding it into other languages. So over the last few months, we've been covering more global stories, and this article on Catalonia was translated into many languages, including quite obviously Spanish, but Portuguese, Russian and Chinese, amongst several others. Recent investment in the BBC World Service has led to its biggest expansion since the 1940s. Hundreds of new staff are going into India and Africa, and there is growth for all existing services. Twelve new language services have been created, including soon a digital service in Serbian. It will bring the total number of non-English services to 40. And this is an area Reality Check will be investing more in, more staff, more stories, more platforms over the coming year. Um, so the global side of our work is incredibly important. Thank you. Thank you very much.